You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Thank you, Scott, and welcome to The Exchange. I'm Kelly Evans. Here's what's ahead this hour. Bulletproof. There's one trade our market guest says can withstand the Fed's dovish hikes, hawkish skips, and whatever else they might throw at us. We'll talk about that, while Nassim Taleb will join us later on in the show to talk about whether he thinks another black swan event could be just around the corner. Plus, China's economy is so weak, officials are reportedly planning fresh stimulus measures. But our investors say the economy may prove more resilient than expected. And they have trades they say can withstand the headwinds. And with banks on the sidelines, other lenders are busy stepping in to fill a capital void in commercial real estate. Acor Capital is the biggest in the sector. His co-CEO says this is the best environment he's seen in his 20-year career. And there are two areas in particular where he sees great opportunity right now. He joins us ahead. Before all that, though, let's have a quick look at today's markets. Dow's up 384 points, rebounding from yesterday's UNH-led decline and continuing the post-Fed rally that we've started to see play out. 1.1% gain here, 44.09 for the S&P with a 36-point pop today. The Nasdaq, for its part, up 87 points, or about two-thirds of 1%. Ironically, it's the laggard, although it's tracking for its longest weekly win streak since March of 2019. Look at the Treasury complex as well, where we saw a big reaction initially to that Fed meeting yesterday. But look at this. 384 was the yield on the 10-year yesterday afternoon after the decision crossed. We're all the way back to 372, while the two-year yield is up at 464. And home builders are on the move. Lennar, your biggest gainer, with a 3% pop today. And earnings, it beat on all key metrics and raised its full-year guidance for home deliveries. We see DR Horton, Poltec Group moving higher as well. The travel trade, though, is sitting out today's rally. Across the hotel names, Hilton, Marriott, and Hyatt, they're all down about 3% in today's session. There has been some weakness in this group lately, which bears watching as everyone continues to emphasize services versus goods in consumer spending in this economy. So back to the Fed. We got a pause, but we also got signals that a couple more rate hikes could be ahead. Double lines Jeff Gunlock calling the Fed's action reminiscent of a famous cartoon. Here's what he told Scott Wapner after Chair Powell's presser yesterday. I feel like the Fed is getting kind of Mr. Magoo-like again, where the last meeting it was a, a hike, but it was called a dovish hike. And now we've got a hawkish pause. I wonder what the mix will be uh, in the July meeting, uh, because it, it seems like the unanimity of opinion and that we need more rate hikes has been made clear. Well, one of my next guests says inflation will remain sticky enough to warrant a couple more hikes by the Fed this year. And he now sees a slowdown arriving later than previously thought. For more, let's bring in Michael Gapin, Bank of America's head of U.S. economics, and Keith Fitzgerald, principal at the Fitzgerald Group. Michael and Keith, it's great to see you both. And Mike, are you the one uh, feeling a little bit more bullish lately? Sure. Well, I think it's hard to deny that the incoming data has been resilient in, in the U.S. economy. So we're now tracking growth of around 2% in the first quarter, solid upward revisions to construction spending, which may be coming out of those large fiscal packages that were passed previously. But the big difference for us has been the sharp rebound in, in labor supply. Last year, there were shortages in labor supply of maybe around 2 million is what we were estimating. Uh, that's now down to about 400,000. Immigration has surged. Participation among prime working age women ha has come back. Makes it easier to add jobs. 
without pushing the unemployment rate lower. It adds to growth and disposable income and resiliency to spending. So yeah, the, the combination of all of this and a little better risk backdrop led us to push out any downturn and we actually made it a lot more, more mild. So hmm. we do think the economy will, will move into 2024 uh, without experiencing a downturn. Because if I'm not mistaken, Mike, your firm was probably the, the it, definitely the first, maybe the only to, to definitively say you thought we were gonna be in a recession in the back half of 23, right? Yeah, I don't know if we were we were first, but yeah, we I, I felt like there was a big gap between labor supply and labor demand, uh, and and to bring inflation down, you you had to lean against that. That that was the Fed's messaging at the time, the error on the side of doing more than than less. But you know, you have to respond to what the data is telling you, and the signal is there's more resiliency here. Uh, so it looks like if there is going to be a downturn, it'll it'll be later. And in the meantime, that resiliency, I think, argues that the Fed probably has more work to do. Yeah. And you also note that the fiscal policy bill spurring investment in manufacturing, that's look, we've seen a massive boom in manu. I've never seen anything like it in construction spending in some of those areas. Keith, for you, how are you investing? I mean, you've been kind of bullish through and through, if I recall. Well, we've been bullish off the October lows, as you recall, and I said distinctly, big tech will return to the head of the class long before people are prepared to accept that reality. That's still the case today. You're, those companies are changing our world, and the amount of money chasing them is growing. It's not shrinking, which, if you think about an ocean, rising tide raises all boats, that's very much the situation we have here today. Apple, Palantir, these are names that you talked about last time. Apple's at an all-time high today. Oracle, man, did that catch you, even you by surprise? Oracle did, honestly. You know, that was one that I did not think was going to be amongst the front runners. But, you know, good on the stock. I don't happen to own Oracle. I wish I did, but I'm content to stick with Apple and Palantir for now. All right, Mike, let's, uh, let's talk about uh, 2024, the dynamics. Now, you know, even while acknowledging some of the things that have gone better than expected, it still feels like everyone is celebrating on a day that jobless claims are still where they are. You know? And I just wonder if we're going to look back and kind of be like, maybe that was the sign that the slowdown was starting to hit. It, it's got to mean something. I mean, they're up quite substantially from their lows. It does. And look, there are signs. There are plenty of signs that the economy is, is slowing. Housing, equipment spending by business of different types of business spending are moderating. Loan growth is certainly slowing down. So the shocks into regional banks and a, and a worsened profitability outlook there. So there are signs. And there's the second derivative, the economy is is moderating. It's just moderating much more slowly than we thought. So, so yes, I, it's not like I think we're going to be rebounding to a 2% or better growth outlook. Uh, it's just that on, on balance, if you think there's going to be a slowdown, I still think it's right to think any downturn will be more mild than, than average and is in part why financial markets are reacting the way they are. And you say your forecast is now as much a growth recession as it is a mild recession. What is a growth recession? I'm not sure I even, you know. <laughs> well, there's all these terms running around, as yeah. you know. A growth recession, I think that we would define as growth that's positive but below trend. So you never quite maybe get negative growth. Uh, but it's slow enough over time that you would take some inflationary pressures out of the economy. An actual recession tends to involve declines in GDP and increase or, or job losses, if, if you will. And our forecast, the way it is now, yes, we do have two negative quarters in the first half of next year. But if you, if you look at it on a Q4 and Q4 basis, take a step back, 
growth this year is uh, we think will be 1.1%. Next year, we think it'll be flat, and then it recovers after that. So if you take a slightly longer perspective, it's, a, it's more about a growth slowdown uh, and not, not actually about maybe a hard landing. But in there, we think you can get one or two quarters of declines in, in GDP as the, as the consumer settles in sure. uh, to a different style of spending. Yeah, already, I mean, it's going to be interesting to look around the world and see, you know, what ends up happening with Europe or New Zealand or all of these different places who are kind of getting some negative prints. But uh, the stock market, at least in Europe's case, not acting like it's in a downturn. Keith, last word to you. Um, market broadly, you still like big tech. Would you stick with it here? You're not taking profits, pairing positions, none of, nothing like that? No, as a matter of fact, I'm hunting for more opportunity because, again, this genie is not going back in the bottle. And, yes, there's going to be ups and downs. But to my colleagues' you know, comments about a recession or a slowing quarter, I actually think we're coming out of a recession, even though it wasn't in, you know, formally called that. So I'm on the hunt. I'm looking for those names that are going to perform. And I want that stuff that customers are running to, not away from. That include Tesla? Yes, it does, as a matter of fact, which I also own. I, I can't get enough of that stock, and I'm hoping I'm smart enough to buy more. Does valuation ever matter, Keith? It does matter, but it doesn't matter like it used to matter, Kelly. That's the part that so many investors are having trouble with. The valuation metrics that we grew up with were measuring an economy that no longer exists. They don't reflect the accuracy and the impact of information and big data. And to me, oh, I don't anything, know. You, you sound to me like Irving Fisher or like, you know, 1999. You know, don't you worry about kind of a rerun of those playbooks? Well, of course I worry about it, but we have a very different world today than we did back then. We have a tremendous amount of liquidity chasing comparatively fewer and fewer quality stocks. If you look at stock market history back to 1871, 1903, 1929, the big money concentrates on these successful companies. That is the way capitalism works. This time is not going to be an exception. All right. We'll leave it there. Gentlemen, thank you. Really appreciate it. Keith Fitzgerald and Michael Gapin. Can't talk today. Let's move on to China. Recovery continues to disappoint with another slew of overnight data adding to signs of a slowdown. Both industrial output and retail sales growth weakened in May from April and came in below analyst estimates. And now the Wall Street Journal is reporting Beijing is preparing for a, quote, new spending drive and other stimulus to revive China's flagging economy. So should you throw in the towel on investing in China or just get started? Joining me now, Stephanie Link is Hightower Chief Investment Strategist and a CNBC contributor. And Jason Su, Israeli and Global Advisors Chief Investment Officer. Welcome to both of you. Steph, we got to talk China because it's confusing and it's so important to kind of the overall macro. Um, what's your, where do you think people should be looking for, for opportunities? I think there are a lot of opportunities out there, mainly on the services part of the economy and also just the consumer in general. So we know the recovery in China has been sluggish. We get that, right? But we have seen a lot of monetary policy uh, uh, inputs over the last couple of weeks, and I think you're going to see more. So they already cut the central bankers. They cut the seven-day reverse re repo rate. They're injecting liquidity. Uh, they, the new bank lending program in May, they, it's up to $190 billion. And of course, they lowered the rate on 33 billion one year medium term lending facilities last night. So all of these things are small, Kelly. But I do think you're going to start to see even more of these uh, because the economy is taking a long time to recover. But as I mentioned, I think services and consumers where you want to be. If you look at the PMI services numbers, the last reading we got 53.8. We have gross gaming revenue in Macau up 173 percent year mm -hmm. over year. The first five the first five months of the year, uh, the gross gaming revenues in Macau totaled eight billion. That's versus five billion all of last year. 
And of course, retail sales, I know that they disappointed, but I would take a 12.7% retail sales growth number any day. It's way better than anybody else, right? So, so that's why I say focus more on the consumer, focus more on services, because I think that's where the opportunity is. That said, Steph, real quickly, it looks like you're playing this through some of the U.S. You know, players with China Exposure, Las Vegas Sands, Estee Lauder, which is a good contrarian pick, as opposed to the Chinese-listed companies themselves. Yeah, I just find that the transparency for China Pure Place uh, is, is limiting. And you can wake up one day and all of a sudden the government will remove the CEO for no reason. So you can do all the fundamental analysis that you like, but it just doesn't pay off m most of the time, at least in my experience. So that's why I think Las Vegas Sands has 40% of their exposure, yeah, 40% of their total exposure in China at, uh, in, in their revenues. And Estee Lauder has 30% exposure in China. And, you know, Estee Lauder has been a dog. I think you can really buy this one at a good price if you have a long-term perspective. Yeah, one of the most surprising quarters, uh, that recent one was with it, you know, but telling uh, yeah. about China. So, Jason, are you doing individual stock picking as well? Or, or how would you describe your investment approach to China? Uh, we're both uh, looking at the macro and, of course, the, the micro. So we certainly study bottoms-up, uh, industry-wide trends, but also, obviously, uh, as Stephanie mentioned, keenly, keenly uh, interested in where the policy wind is going to lean. So tell me where you're – what are you doing in terms of China? Are you bullish on China? Are you bearish? Uh, what's, your, what's kind of your take on what's going on with the economy here? Yeah, so we're we're uh, you know a, a contrarian value investor, and so for us, you know, China is a particularly interesting opportunity right now, because it is disappointing expectation. There is sort of scary geopolitical optics risk, and what better time uh, to buy than when there's a lot of risk, and a risk premium is probably overcompensating for the optics risk versus the actual risk on the ground. Uh, you know, we're not surprised by the fact that uh, the numbers are softer than expectation, but as Stephanie mentions, it's still a fairly good number versus what you can buy in terms of growth anywhere else. Uh, and right now, I think, you know, all eyes on what Beijing is going to do. And in, in some ways, sort of soft numbers are good news, right? Because that forces Beijing's hand, right? It's got to roll out the much anticipated fiscal stimulus, uh, the big package that are rolled out post the global financial crisis that really turned around China's economy. Now, right now, right, what you don't have is not the capacity issue, right? Everyone has the capacity to spend. There's an enormous savings rate, a lot of money trapped in the banking system looking to spend and to invest. But what's lacking is confidence. And confidence, I think that can get turned around with more fiscal stimulus, uh, with a big announcement on the monetary side, suggesting that Beijing does care about GDP and GDP growth after all. So would you have people invest this through, you know, a China ETF, that kind of thing? Or, or what, what would be your strategy? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I generally don't recommend uh, investors to, to buy individual stocks just because, especially in a, in, a, in a marketplace like China, where, as Stephanie mentioned, the fundamental is is a bit less transparent. So you actually need someone who's on the ground. Uh, the geopolitics, you know, that can whipsaw. And so you really need someone who can sort of help you read the tea leaf in terms of a policy wind is, is leaning. Uh, so I would say, you know, buy an active ETF where someone's managing the exposure for you and is much more broadly diversified versus you, you know, listening to, 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 a, to, a, to a story and then buying a stock tip. All right. We'll leave it there. Jason, Sue, Stephanie Link, thank you both. Appreciate it as China remains a thorn in most investors' side. Coming up, shares of Kava, the Mediterranean fast casual chain, are surging in their trading debut, opening at 42 from the IPO price of 22. And Kava's not the only recent listing doing well right now. We'll take a look at why. Plus, a new warning about the chance of a big drop in the S&P 500 in the next month. We'll talk to two people who know about big drops and how to profit from them. One just wrote a book about it. The other has lived it. 
Chaos Kings author Scott Patterson and Mr. Black Swan himself, Nassim Taleb, join me live in studio a little bit later on. And as we go to break, here's a look at markets. Dow's up 339 or 1%, while the Nasdaq is up just half that amount. Russell's are unch and the 10-year back at 372. We're back after this. This is The Exchange on CNBC. Welcome back to The Exchange. Here's the test of markets. What do you think Chair Powell is thinking about this today? Uh, Kava Group opening well above expectations at $42 a share versus its $22 offering price. And the last 18 months have marked the slowest IPO market since the financial crisis. But is today going to be the end of the dry spell? Let's ask Dan Primack. He's editor at Axios Business and our very own Leslie Pickers here on set with me as well. Welcome to both of you. Dan, Kava, I, I still think about what you said. We need like some B2B software companies, but this still feels telling somehow. It, it does. Look, I, I stand by that, that, you know, issuers or prospective issuers want to see companies that look sort of like themselves. But certainly, I think IPO bankers are ringing off the phone today because, I mean, the one thing Kava certainly says is that institutional buyers, those mutual funds, hedge funds, et cetera, are interested in a new issue. And in this case, you, you mentioned Chairman Powell, a new issue that's dealing with high labor costs and high right. supply costs. Right. And yet, Leslie, look at the shares. What, what are people saying about this debut, about the pricing, about the pipeline as a result? I, I'm talking to a lot of investors who are very angry about not getting allocation to this deal. You can see why that would be. But it's all about scarcity with this one. Scarcity and the fact that it's coming at a time where we haven't really seen a consumer name brand, buzzy IPO in a about 18 months time. So there's scarcity just in new issuance, period. But then there was also scarcity in the book because you had three long-only mutual funds who took up about 30% of the allocation here. You had some crossover investors, meaning those who were invested pre-IPO, bulking up at the offering price as well. So that left very little for the rest of the market to get into this. And that's why you're seeing the 30 times oversubscribed numbers and the aftermarket activity today. I promise not to go on this rant every time we talk about an IPO. <laughs> but Dan, okay, the only people who are going to do well are the people who got it at 22 and are flipping it in the open market. What do you, what do you say the odds are that this company is above 22 12 months from now? I mean, look, it, it is unlikely. I mean, if you look at the company, yeah, I mean, the most obvious comp here in terms of not just sort of company, but kind of recent IPO, relatively recent, is Sweetgreen, right? And Sweetgreen also had an enormous bounce at the IPO. It has come way back down. Now, granted, Kava seems to have better same-store economics than Sweetgreen does. But, you know, I don't know if you and I had a conversation the day Sweetgreen went public, but if we did, it was pretty similar. The chart mm -hmm. was pretty similar. Mm -hmm. Right, and the the so... I guess, Leslie, what I'm saying is the IPO model works well for people who get allocations at the IPO price and can sell them on the open. Great. No brainer. I'd want those shares, too. But if my only choices are to buy it at 42 or not, that to me seems like a much easier call. And unfortunately, I'm not sure. I don't think this is the next Chipotle. Well, there's there's research that shows that companies that double on the first day of trading usually don't stay that high or go higher from there for a certain period of time. I want to say it's six months to a year or something like that. So there is kind of this short term risk, of course, with these deals that have 
so much momentum out of the gate uh, and their ability to sustain them. Not true in all cases, but it's definitely something to be mindful of if you're if you're buying shares today. And that said, we know the market is also meant to kind of entice other companies in, right, Dan? Like they, you want to see the pop so that people want to go public and they go public to give liquidity to employees and people who've been waiting. So Stripe or who are some of the other ones sitting out there? Reddit, you know, right. I guess. What are the prospects that we could start to Instacart? Are, are they coming to market? This is the window. Hey, Instacart and Reddit are the two that we keep waiting for this year. Stripe's not going to do it this year. They, they got liquidity for employees through, through a different mechanism, so they're going to hold off. Uh, you know, it, the expectation, there is an expectation that we are going to see not a huge number, but a decent number of IPOs post Labor Day. And I will say what we've seen today with Kava, I think, makes that more likely. I think if you were on the fence as an issue or trying to decide, well, we, we think our numbers are good, but man, is there going to be anyone who has any interest in buying? I think the Kava experience does say to them, there, there's a market here. There's a potential here for us. Last word, Leslie. I would just say that it's important to kind of extrapolate the types of companies that could go public in this market. People talk about profitability, but sector specific is also really important here too, because yes, the broader market is up, but there are certain industries that are still behind where they were say in 2021, when a lot of these companies were having deliberations about whether to go public. So they're saying, well, you told me in 2021, I could get this valuation. Now that's looking to be a lot lower. Maybe I'll, if I can afford it, I'll hold off to wait until valuations in the public markets in my specific area have I've recouped before going public because I want to get the biggest bang for my buck. And it reminds me, you know, if uh, if, if fast casual is hot right now, Panera is evidently looking mm-hmm. to, to maybe list itself again. They're probably looking at this and thinking maybe go ahead, Dan. And Kelly, it's worth noting there, there's a connection between Panera and Kava, which is a guy named Ron Sheik, who's the lead uh, yeah. independent director at Kava, and he used to run Panera. So there's there's a connection between those companies. Oh, he is the interesting. <laughs> He's always one to watch. It's funny how many industries, if you know the right people to watch, it can often lead you to the right places. I'll leave it on that more hopeful note. I had Kava yesterday, by the way, and it was delicious. Uh, <laughs> thank you both, Dan Primack, Leslie Picker. We appreciate it. Coming up, shares of SoFi have been on a massive run, nearly doubling in just the past month. Today, Oppenheimer downgrading the stock on value but that's not the whole story. The analyst will join us ahead. Plus, commercial real estate could be heading for even more pain than in the Great Recession. That's the warning from the co-CEO of one of the biggest non-bank lenders who also sees massive opportunity because of it. He's here to tell us where. And as we go to break, here's a look at the Dow heat map. United Health leading the index higher. It was the opposite to, uh, yesterday. Only four names are in the red with Nike, one of the biggest losers again. The exchange is back after this. Welcome back to The Exchange. Dow's up 1% today, rebounding both from yesterday's UNH decline and obviously continuing to perform after the Fed meeting. NASDAQ up half a percent. Again, a much better tone across equities than we usually see in that kind of initial uh, 18, 20, 36 hours after the Fed meeting. I want to talk about shares of Kroger today, though they are down on a revenue miss. They beat on earnings. But management saying on the call that budget-conscious households are buying fewer items, particularly amid that SNAP benefits downturn. That said, mainstream and higher-income shoppers are actually up their spend. Kroger shares are down about 3% today. It's actually its worst drop since October, something to keep an eye on. Elsewhere, Manchester United popping on a report. It's negotiating exclusively with former Qatari Prime Minister Sheikh Jassim for a sale. He made his first big back in February. This soccer team could sell for more than $6 billion. It's been kind of a drawn-out saga, but the shares are popping 6% today. Uh, after being halted earlier on a couple of times, they're up more, uh, just about 30% this week now, on pace for the best week since November. And EV stocks are surging today on optimism 
criticism over the Chinese EV makers after Xpeng announced it's received approval to start rolling out driver assist technology in Beijing. That is boosting the whole group. Tesla, though, is trading lower. It ended its 13-day win streak yesterday, although data firm Vandetrack says retail investors perceive Tesla more as an AI proxy than an EV story, at least for now. Tesla also today said they'll reduce the number of temp workers and extra shifts in that Berlin Gigafactory, saying they're on track to hit production targets. Now to Bertha Coombs for a CNBC News update. Hi, Bertha. Hi, Kelly. Tropical cyclone has made landfall in India. Meteorologists say it is bringing extremely heavy rainfall, waves up to 10 feet, and winds near 80 miles an hour. More than 180,000 people have been evacuated from parts of India and Pakistan ahead of the cyclone's arrival. Forecasters say it could be the worst storm to hit the area in 25 years. The same week, former President Donald Trump was arraigned in his uh, city on uh, federal criminal charges. The mayor of Miami is jumping into the race for the Republican presidential nomination. Francis Suarez announced he is joining the crowded field on social media today. Nearly a dozen other Republicans have announced their candidacies. Trump and Florida Governor Ron DeSantis are leading the pack in polling right now. And two NASA astronauts conducted a spacewalk outside of the International Space Station today. They continued admission to roll out solar panels on the ISS. This was their second walk in less than a week. I'm always on pins and needles when I watch them do that. Yeah. It's, it's scary to me. It is very cool. And I agree. I, I wouldn't do it. I'm glad they right? will. Totally. Bertha, thank you. Coming up, it's the best of times in commercial real estate. Uh-huh. For one firm whose CEO says now is the best time in his 20-plus year career to be a buyer as other players exit the market. So are CRE lending concerns overblown? We'll ask Warren DeHaan of Acor about that next. Welcome back to The Exchange. A credit crunch, particularly in commercial real estate, is widely expected and worried about in the aftermath of the banking stress earlier this year. But former Fed Vice Chair Roger Ferguson told me earlier, as part of the CNBC Financial Advisor Summit, that there are opportunities in credit right now, if you know where to look. I think uh, there will certainly be some you know, good opportunities in credit. Now, obviously, the issue around credit is choosing the names carefully with you know, a, a sense of, do I understand the underlying business? But certainly, as you point out, in terms of uh, preference, um, you know, credit is where one would be in, in lieu of equity. Well, my next guest definitely agrees, saying he expects his company could see equity-like returns with taking on debt risk. Joining me now is Warren DeHaan. He's managing partner and co-CEO of Acor Capital, one of the largest non-bank CRE lenders. Welcome. Thanks, Kitty. Like the most topical person to talk to these days, non-bank commercial real estate. In some ways, it's both the be best and worst of times, isn't it? Look, I think this to, to help frame up the situation. You know, it's a very large market. Uh, we have about four and a half trillion dollars of commercial real estate debt that is outstanding. You have about two and a half trillion dollars of that debt coming due in the next five years. And this is the you know U.S. as a whole. This is the U.S. Yeah. Okay. Um, so on the you have a supply and demand call it imbalance that's taking place right now, is that there's not that much liquidity as we had in prior cycles, uh, and the demand is exceeding that supply. So on the demand side, you know, you have $2.5 trillion of debt coming due, a trillion five by the end of next year. Um, 
and you have about, a, a, uh, call it $500 billion of private equity looking to invest in commercial real estate needing debt. So call it another trillion dollars of need. On the supply side, it's pretty clear. The banks are retrenching. The banks are facing increased regulatory scrutiny. And then we know what's going on with the regional banks. They're facing a whole other degree of, of, of concerns, not just regulatory, uh, but also balance sheets and liquidity. Sure, just their general profitability. And we've seen one bank after another coming out and saying, we're not doing any new office lending right now. It's too much of a headache. Investors don't want it. They don't want the credit exposure. What's interesting to me is that you now are seeing some of the best opportunities you've seen in some time while also having a little bit of the concern I think we all share about the economy. So what strategically are you able to look at right now and say, hey, we don't mind putting capital, you know, is it just the best office space? Is it, you know, and I know office is just a small piece of Siri, but it's probably what people yeah. care most about. What's your strategy for office in particular? Sure. I would just say, I'd say generally a lot of the press is overblowing the issue, right? You can't paint all of CRE with one brush. There are sectors like multifamily, industrial, self-storage, and certain parts of hospitality, and, I, and the list goes on that are actually performing from a profitability perspective better than we've seen them in the past. And is that mostly where you're active right now? We are active, very active in the multifamily sector. We're very active industrial in these sectors by and large. You know, we look to, in, to invest in the top quartile assets, top quartile markets, top quartile borrowers. And within that structure, we're able to make risk-adjusted returns that are significantly better than what they've been in the past. Like uh, upwards of 10% kind of thing? or not It depends what we're doing. The, pre the predominance of our capital is for senior loans. Uh, so call it 65% loan-to-cost senior loans that are anywhere between 85 and 11% rates wow. of return without leverage. To give you the context for that, about a year ago, those numbers were 3 or 4%. Wow. So the issue the market faces is that it, there isn't enough capital available at the appropriate price, which leads to the opportunity for the non-banking sector. Yeah. So in a way, I'm, I'm relieved that there are players like you. It means, you know, you can help maybe lessen what would have been a worse credit crunch by stepping up. On the other hand, these are kind of punitive rates for a lot of people to be paying. And we still have kind of danced around the office thing. I mean, would you be, are you active in that sector at all? Or, or is that one that you just have to kind of take a step back and just say the risks aren't worth it? Uh, it's a very good question. Look, we are lenders. We're not taking equity risk. So there are situations where we can just drop the leverage and get better covenants that make for a very good loan. So we are doing a couple of office loans. Uh, we're doing one in West Palm Beach right now, which is, which is incredible. And all the dynamics are great. And we're making very good returns for our investors. So the office sector, by and large, the Class A sector has performed very well. The Class B sector, not so well. The issue with office is that there aren't discernible trends right now. We're still waiting to see how this plays out from a psychological and consumption perspective for us to determine if it's underwritable. So if people called everyone back to the office tomorrow, that would change the story, right? We've started to see people come back, but you know, when we're celebrating the fact that vacancies, I think, got back above, yeah. or occupancy got back above 50%, that feels like, okay, this, this maybe is a permanent change. And impairment. I think there's a lot to learn. You know, I like to f focus on, um, on what we know and, and, and control the controllables and then see what we can do about the non-controllables. In terms of behavior, there's still a lot to learn. But there are office buildings within certain markets that are close to 70, 80, 90% actually occupied, fully leased and that occupied and are achieving rents that we've never seen before. Hmm. So we will be attracted to those buildings. It's the one where that, that the words functional obsolescence are creeping into. 
that we stay away from. Sure. Makes sense. Last final question is, where do you think we are in 12 months' time? Is it simply that there's been a market shift from banks' involvement in commercial real estate to non-banks like yourself, but we're able to kind of keep the, the trains going, so to speak? Or is there a derailment coming? I mean, let's separate liquidity from credit. The credit derailment could happen to the extent we have a perpetuating very high interest rate environment, and secondly, weakness in the consumer and weakness in corporate, in corporate earnings. So certainly two things that we're looking on prospectively. In the meantime, this liquidity question really needs to be solved in a couple of ways. I think we need rate stability. Mm -hmm. To the extent we get rate stability entering into the equation, we'll see the securities buyers come back in, mm -hmm. the bond buyers, and freeing up some of that capital off of the bank's balance sheets for them to reinvest mm -hmm. again in this generation of loans. So in a loan, you have two components. You have the base index, which is really driven by Fed funds rate, which is kind of 500 basis points in a nanosecond. And secondly is the risk premium, mm -hmm. the spread. And so both of those are at historical wide levels. To the extent we get rate stability, that risk premium will condense as more capital moves into the sector. And then secondly, it's anyone's guess what the Fed is going to do, but it feels like the Fed is going to hold rates kind of around these levels for a while, meaning that it's, we're going to get a little bit of both. And then one other point to add on to that is the real question comes down to what's going to happen with $2.5 trillion of loans coming due. Will the Fed, in fact, uh, 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 will the regulators enable the banks to extend these loans? And secondly, will the banks be able to extend exactly. these loans because of their balance sheet issues? But that's fascinating to think about the significance of the Fed possibly holding here, that it could, I don't want to put it too strongly, bail out the commercial real estate space versus imperil it further. Warren, thank you so much for joining us, connecting some of these dots. We appreciate it. Thanks, Kelly. Thanks for Warren having me. Warren DeHaan of Acor. Still ahead, Oppenheimer downgrading SoFi to perform today on concerns the share price has run up too far too fast. SoFi is about 4% lower on the news, but still up 14% this week. We've got the analyst behind the call and why he's still bullish long term. That's next. Welcome back to The Exchange. SoFi getting a lot of analyst attention lately. A month ago on this show, Mizuho's Dan Dolev called the SoFi bears mathematically and intellectually off. And it was time to go all in on the stock. It's up about 100% since then. Earlier this week, BTIG named it a top pick in the fintech space, seeing a 45% rally on some student loan payments resuming. That, by the way, uh, could be ruled on any day now by the Supreme Court. And meanwhile, SoFi is up 94% since Dolev's original call, which brings us to today's call by Oppenheimer. They're downgrading the bank to perform from outperform on valuation concerns in the near term. But analyst Dominic Gabriel still likes the SoFi story for the long run, and he joins me now. Dominic, it's great to have you here. What is the valuation uh, at the moment? Absolutely. Uh, thank you so much uh, for having me as well. I mean, you're, when we look at the SoFi story, we want to really break down uh, SoFi into two parts. And you really want to break down the bank on its own and the technology segment. And when you add all those up at a higher valuation of roughly, you know, three times uh, tangible book value multiple um, and about a dollar twenty or so for the bank using Fiserv and FIS as revenue multiple uh, comparables, you get to roughly about a $9, $9.50 stock. And we think that that's at the high end of where the stock is likely to trade on 2024 estimates. Yep. So, you know, now I guess the question becomes from here after this, you know, initial flurry of excitement about, you know, and, and just so people are following, the student loan resumption could be a huge catalyst for people to refi. And that's kind of SoFi's bread and butter. What's the next leg of the story? 
Yeah, it's a great question. Um, and that is baked into our estimates. We also have a big, uh, some personal loans slow down and originations baked into our estimates, given our overall thesis about, you know, consumer spending slowing, demand slowing. Uh, that's also baked into our estimates. But we think that the SoFi story is going to be one of just execution. And instead of having various company-specific or macro issues affecting the trajectory of the stock, we really think that it's going to be all about execution, delivering on what they've said, gap profitability, improving margins over time. We think that that's going to drive the stock higher over time, but perhaps a pullback uh, to lower levels near term. Sure. And uh, those lower levels, be they what they are, don't deter your long-term uh, more bullishness on the stock? It doesn't because, look, they've done a really great job on their revenue growth and being really nimble. And the diversification of their business has really shown through, given that you know they were really low on originations for student loans, which is where they originally started the business. Had they not made the changes they made over the last number of years to diversify their business, this would have been a potentially in a this stock would have been in a significantly different place. And it's because of their execution that, look, they've got they've been beating expectations. Uh, we actually raised our revenue outlook in this note. We reiterated our outperform when the stock was just below five dollars as well, trying to, you know, bite the fight the bears off with a big stick. And um, and so we believe in the company's execution. We believe in the business model. It, for us, it's just a, about valuation. All right. It's good to have you here today, Dominic. Thanks for your time. Thank you. Talking SoFi. Still ahead, Black Swans, Dragon Kings. No matter how you call them or what team you're on, the new book, Chaos Kings, takes a deep dive into how a select group of traders makes big money on catastrophic events. Author Scott Patterson and the man synonymous with the Black Swan, Nassim Nicholas Taleb, there they are, right here at the Telestrator to discuss that in person. We'll speak after this quick break. Don't go anywhere. Welcome back. Goldman's derivatives team out with a new note today, warning the chance of a big drop in the S&P 500 in the next month is much higher than average. My next guests have some familiarity with big market drops and how people have actually been able to profit from them. Joining me now is Wall Street Journal reporter Scott Patterson and Nassim Nicholas Taleb, distinguished scientific advisor for Universal Investments and author of The Black Swan, one many other books. He's profiled in Scott's new book, Chaos Kings, How Wall Street Traders Make Billions in the New Age of Crisis. Welcome to both of you. Thank it's you. great Thanks, to have you here. Um, Scott, this book, and, and we got to mention the COVID pandemic, that was one that... I guess, why don't you start with how many times in the past 15 years there have been big, profitable, if we can call them black swan events like these? Well, there's been two big ones, obviously. 2008, the global financial crisis, which is right after Universa, the hedge fund that I write about and that Nassim is an advisor for, launched uh, very precipitously. (laughs) Um, They did very well. And then, uh, obviously, 2020, when COVID came along and Universa put up these phenomenal returns. And that's when the idea for this book came to me is, how do these guys do that? And, and Bill Ackman did it too. I mean, you chronicled this as yeah. well, but what would he make $3.6 billion first on shorting in kind of Jan of 2020 and then going long in March once uh, sort of, once, once hell came, so to speak. Yeah, yeah, that, that for, that's the first chapter of the book. It's called Hell is Coming. It's from when Bill came on CNBC and kind of freaked out and freaked everybody out 
but at that point, he'd already put on this massive trade, I think $27 million. And out of that, yeah, he got $3.6, $3.5 billion. It's incredible. And one of the kind of wonky uh, parts of the book that people might enjoy is this question, Nassim, about whether you can actually predict black swan events, no, i.e. Try to, try to time it, or simply just always you be prepared cannot, for them. You cannot. Let me say something more general for about, about Scott's work and, and why it's important. It's not important. You know, because someone made some money at some point uh, in the market, and made it. it's important because he's making us conscious of severe societal risks, but they are so abstract that we ignore them. These tail events, big tail events, and Scott is a storyteller. Unlike me, I'm an author. I'm abstract. He's a good storyteller, so he can embed it into individuals. So that's what uh, what what he does very well. And, 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 and being a journalist, he can tell a story and make us conscious of these as class of risks um, overall. I mean, forget finance. I mean, it's, it's much more central than that. So, and, and the point of, of the precautionary principle that comes, you know, that, that out of this uh, tail risk class of events is, is that we should, as a society, have a systematic approach to them. And, and, and he does a great job. I mean, it's not just a finance book. It's way beyond. Oh, well, I try to tell stories through characters like Nassim and get into compli complicated stories through the character. I kind of think of it as the sugar that gets the medicine go down. A hundred percent. And there's a reason we featured a couple of books this week because Father's Day is coming up. And when, when people are thinking, you know, about, hey, what can we have, uh, you know, dive into, this would certainly be one of them. One of the things that comes up, Nassim, is globalization and this yes. idea that this, okay. you sort of foresaw this as being a contributor to the possibility of a black swan event like a, a pandemic and whatnot. Yes. We are now deglobalizing to some extent, although I know plenty of people on international vacations. You know, do you think that the golden era of these of the kind of globalization black swan world is behind us now? Or do you think these kinds of uh, things might increase with frequency? No, I think we haven't seen yet the, the <laughs> negative or, and, and the positive payoff from globalization. It's a very good thing, pulled up 1 billion, 2 billion out of poverty. But with it comes too much connectedness, too much reactability of systems. And we have risk, look what, what happened in pandemia, shortages and huge gluts, and then huge shortages. So these things wouldn't have happened 50 years ago, not even 25 years ago. So we live in a world that we don't quite understand at the, you know, uh, the regulatory level, uh, political level, but, but some people understand it. But we need to make people aware of the side effects of these things. Sure. Let's not now throw the baby with the bathwater, throw out the baby with the bathwater. Globalization is something that is helping us survive as a society. But something that Nassim yeah. has been writing about for a long time is that with optimization of supply chains, when everything is tried, you know, tried to get it faster, quicker as possible, that's when things can break down. Fragility. And that's exactly what exactly. we saw. The fragility that we have. And fragility. then the idea is to, to push people to start mapping their fragilities. Understand that you have winner-take-all effects at the level of everything, including errors, like small errors and, and I understand that this is a broad societal book, but what's fascinating to our audience in particular is how do you translate that into profits, into investment gains? Or So is your strategy, as you've said, it, should we it's think not, of this as kind of an insurance policy where you constantly are, you know, you have puts or you have, against a big market to drop, and then once every, in a while, something crazy happens, and you're glad you had that insurance policy. Okay, no, and I mean, in many domains, people are quite understand it. I mean, you, people have insurance on their house. People have insurance. They won't buy a house if they can't get insurance. But in some domains, when 
uh, when it's someone else's money at play, people forget these principles. So for example, finance, pension funds, they're not managed by the real owners of the fund. You manage your own insurance, you know, for your house. So it's not managed. So you have a, a gap in there. We have a conflict of interest. And people tend to try to forget about these uh, events because, you know, they happen rarely. And when they happen, you hope to be retired. And as we know, most people, Scott, are required to have insurance for things like their home or their car because they don't want to have to pay for it, right? You want to be able to just say, you know what, I'm good. I don't need to worry about it. After what we saw in certainly in the financial crisis, and I guess to some extent 2020, there was a proliferation of these strategies where people say there was a black swan ETF briefly or something like that, where they yeah. say, I take the concept and we can replicate this maybe and, and offer it as a general service for people. Do you think that that is going to take off or is this going to remain kind of a, a niche approach? Uh, you know, it's interesting. After the global financial crisis, you saw at, you know, the success that Universa had. There were copycat funds that popped up. There's more still hanging around, but it's a very hard strategy to keep up because, as Nassim knows, he went through it. Uh, you have to keep losing mm -hmm. month after month, sometimes year after year, mm -hmm. until the event happens. And the trick is to be able to do that, to stay alive right. and not bleed to death. And not lose all your clients in the uh, meantime. Yeah, not lose all your clients. In the last you know, minute that I have, Nassim, the yeah. one question I've been wanting to ask you, I know you don't really want to answer it, but if you could just please, for the sake yes. of those watching, we see the market flying this year. We see some of the macro data weakening. Yeah. Like, do you think... I'm going to ask you something you don't want me to ask you, but do yeah, you okay, think no, this we, we could have, be climaxing in some kind of, and I know 1987 is what got you into the no, business, this is something actually, like that. Yeah, this is actually something that resembles uh, uh, 2008, 2007, in the sense that we had a financial crisis. The reaction was to lower rates, so which is a temporary policy to cure a structural problem. So they put Novocaine on a wound, no pain. And now we're waking up because we had more accumulation of debt. We have valuations in real estate that are fake. You know, real estate, you know, 3% interest rates. Mortgage is now north of 7%. So we're going to have to take some pain with the adjustment to the fact that interest rates at zero are not going to happen again because we discovered now that it's a very bad policy. It's not a way to cure. So with interest rates higher, we're going to have gravity. Yeah. And a lot of tumors, what I call them tumors in the system, like Bitcoin, are going to have, are gonna have the to... The news flow today uh, exactly. is coming around to your bearishness uh, on okay. Bitcoin, by the way, with one thing after another. There's much more detail in the book, obviously, if you want to know about all these different uh, trades and strategies at a time like this. Scott, perfectly timed. Thank you both for joining me. I really appreciate it. Scott Patterson and Nassim Nicholas Taleb. <clears throat> that does it for The Exchange, everybody. But there's a whole lot more next hour. Eamon Javers in for Tyler. He is getting ready, and I'll join him on the other side of this break. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place.